Well, I love to go back to one of my heroes of the faith, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He told his congregation, he said this, Startle not when I say it. I fear that many men proudly ask to be humble. They desire to be humble in order that they may be admired for it. And that word humility, it's an easy enough word to understand, but it's a massive topic of discussion. It's something we generally agree upon and yet have such difficulty implementing it in our own lives. In fact, it's a concept that a lot of unbelievers would say, non-Christians would say that that they value humility, although the non-Christian is by definition one who has not humbled himself before God in repentance. Humility can be wrongly characterized as thinking lowly thoughts about yourself as opposed to thinking lofty thoughts about yourself when in fact we've already tripped up in that the focus of our thinking is already ourselves. And so humility is the idea I'd like to examine today. We've just begun now walking through John 13 and 14. Turn with me to John chapter 13 and we'll look at verses 12 through 17 today. And our purpose in these chapters is to try to Examine the idea of what we're calling the triumphant Christian life, a life that's characterized by certain elements which round out a mature, uh, robust walk with the Lord. And this passage in John 13 and 14, this is very exciting to us because this is what's often called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse of Jesus Christ. And this is exciting because this is the last night before his arrest and and his crucifixion, and now he's imparting wisdom to his disciples, everything that they need to hear to carry on his ministry after he's gone. And so these are the most important things that he has chosen to say on this last night with them. And so we'll see in these chapters that Jesus is giving weighty and lofty and practical wisdom from which we also can glean principles concerning a triumphant Christian life. Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room prepared for them to receive the Passover meal together. Supper has been served. It's on the table. And Jesus stopped before they ate to give a demonstration. And it was an unusual act to create a teachable moment. And he will wash the feet of the disciples. Now, we looked last time at the actual details of the foot washing and why this was such a humble act. In the first 11 verses, we said that Jesus was giving the lesson of washing away of sins, that he must wash away your sins in order for you to have a part with him. But he made a very specific point to speak about the relational forgiveness involved between a believer in Christ and the Lord, that we need to have our feet washed, our feet washed regularly, meaning that all of us has been washed, our entire body is washed, spiritually speaking, but we have our feet washed on a regular basis, meaning that we confess sin. And we said that confession of sin means to agree with God about our sin. It doesn't mean we're adding to our salvation, it doesn't mean we're regaining our salvation in some way, but we're maintaining this beautiful and unbroken relationship with our Heavenly Father through confession. But now Jesus changes subjects and he uses the foot washing example for a specific lesson and it's a lesson in humility. Now last time we said that the first element of the triumphant Christian life is a confession-filled life and today we'll say that it is a humility-filled life. A humility-filled life. Now we've already taught through the first 11 verses but let's read those again to regain our context and our setting. So we'll read verses 1 through 17 this morning. Follow along with me in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, I'd like to divide these verses, 12 through 17, into just four explanations of humility. Four explanations of humility. The first we'll call the example of humility. The example of humility, verse 15, Jesus said, for I have given you an example. It's a word that just means a, a pattern or a model. It's a generic word. It's, a, it's not a, a moralistic word one way or another. It just means a pattern to follow. You can follow a bad pattern. You can follow a good pattern. The implication here obviously is this is a good pattern, something to emulate, And so he explains this example in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his other garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Peter had allowed Jesus to wash his feet. Jesus washed the other disciples' feet, and he asked the question, do you understand what I'm doing? Well, obviously, he knows the answer is no. That's why he's setting up this lesson. He set them up for something they'll never forget. We know this last time that Jesus had dressed down like a servant in verse 4, that he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. It would have been a large garment that he would tie around his waist, but also have enough to dry feet with it as well. He would take off his outer garments as a servant. A servant would do this so that he could move around freely and so that he wouldn't get his clothes all wet because it was kind of a, a splashy sort of event here. Now, obviously, Jesus is not concerned about getting his clothes wet. In a few hours, his clothes are going to be soaked with his own blood. What he's doing, though, is giving a visual demonstration that they'll never forget. He dressed down like a servant to give them this visual, a reminder of what humility looks like. How would they ever forget this? How could they ever forget Jesus taking their grimy feet into his own hands washing the dirt and whatever else animals left in the road, and then taking that towel and drying their feet, they would never forget that. And the reason for their discomfort, as we said last time, is the social awkwardness that's happening here, that the the greater person is washing the feet of the lesser person. This is why Peter tried to refuse. He said, this will never be. This is not okay. This is not right. But for them, and this is even more ironic, Because Jesus wasn't just higher than they were in rank. Jesus is higher than everyone in rank. He's not just over the disciples. He's over planet Earth. And in verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. They did call him teacher. From this particular word, we get our word didactic. It is the title of honor and respect. They often call Jesus rabbi. That's a, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word rabbi, which means to, to call somebody Lord. And eventually it came to mean a religious teacher in Jesus' day. This was in keeping with his role in teaching them and training them. This was a typical teacher and disciple relationship that they had. But they also call him Lord, kurios. And this is just an expression overall that's used of someone who's in authority. It could be a landowner. It could be your boss. It could be somebody who's over you in any way. But this is especially important for him because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word kurios that's used to speak of God. 
And so when the disciples called him Lord, in the case of Jesus, this is an indication of deity. And so Jesus doesn't deny his rightful position. He is their teacher. He is their Lord. And then he gives the linchpin of his argument. He'll make an airtight case that they must humble themselves in their service as followers of Christ. Verse 14, if then your Lord and teacher, and notice he switched them, now he's talking about himself as God and your teacher. If, then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In verse 13, when he says, you call me teacher and Lord, the Greek literally says, you call me the teacher and the Lord. Now, normally, this would mean you need a a direct object or a modifier. The teacher from Galilee or the Lord of the 12 disciples. And so English translations rightly translate it simply as a name they call him. You call me teacher, you call me Lord. Your teacher, though, in that time, he wasn't just a paid employee of the local public school district that you moderately respected. Your teacher was someone you lived your life with. You sat under his teaching. You learned from him. You lived your life around him. You would even serve your teacher. He was pouring the knowledge of God into you and into your life. And therefore, he rightly expected to be provided for by you and to be served by you. As a matter of fact, speaking of foot washing, one class of society which was, in fact, expected to wash feet was the pupil and student washing the feet of the teacher. Now, even though here the use of teacher and Lord speaks of the name they called him directly, there, there's a bigger picture here. In the context of all of the Gospels, when they spoke of Jesus, when they spoke of him indirectly to others, they did use the designation, the teacher, John 11, and the Lord, John 20, John 21, implying, of course, that Jesus is the ultimate teacher and the ultimate Lord. Even John, in his gospel, in narrating these events, sometimes refers to Jesus in this honoring fashion, calling him the Lord in John 6 and in John 11, as if there is no other. Meaning, of course, that the linchpin, the the final nail in the argument of Jesus, he's told them something previously unthinkable. He said, if I have washed your feet, then you should wash one another's feet. This was absurd. This was socially unacceptable. Social equals did not wash one another's feet. But by someone who is greater than them washing the lesser's feet, now he's cornered them. They don't have a choice. He's basically said, if I, the great Lord and the great teacher, wash your feet, it's not too much for me to ask you to wash one another's feet. And as has happened a thousand times, I'd like to write this in the margin of my Bible. I wish they would just say it once. This is what really happened. We give up. Your argument is secure. It's sound. He argues them right into this corner. Now, what does he mean, though, when he said you must wash one another's feet? He wasn't talking about just literally pouring water on people's feet, obviously. That brings us to the second explanation of humility. First, he's given the example of humility. He's the example. But now... He'll give the outworking of humility. The outworking of humility. How does humility in the life of a believer in Christ manifest itself? How does it come out? In verse 15, he generalizes foot washing to simply say, be like me. Be like me. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, why do you think Jesus was driving this point home so forcefully? Well, as we saw last week, this was his last night to teach them. Before his arrest and his crucifixion, he's giving them a visually unforgettable lesson. But there's a backstory behind this as well. Earlier the same evening, some of the disciples got into a little bit of an argument. Luke chapter 22 records this. You can just listen. Beginning in verse 24, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And the disciples were still thinking, they still had this wrong thought that Jesus was going to take the throne of Israel, get rid of Rome, probably take over the world, and they then would certainly, as the ones who had been faithful to him for three and a half years, they would be the highest officials in the new established kingdom of God on earth. And so they were arguing over, well, who gets to be the minister of defense? Then who gets to be the secretary of state? And who gets to do this? But the disciples needed to get over the idea that they were about to ascend great thrones of glory and they needed to get used to the idea that they were about to expend their lives for Christ and for the gospel. And they would have to set the example for the soon-to-be-born church of Jesus Christ. Would they do it? Indeed, they would. They would spread the word of this vital lesson that Jesus taught them. And how do we know this? Well, you have to remember that John's gospel was written in the mid-80s of the first century, the last gospel to be written. And listen to this. By the time John's gospel was written, the foot-washing example of Jesus was already extremely well-known in the church. And in fact, now to say foot-washing became a way of saying humble service among the saints of the church of Jesus Christ. It became the new euphemism, so to speak, of service. In fact, I think it'd be helpful for us to turn to 1 Timothy 5. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is giving instructions about how various groups in the church are to be treated. You're to treat older men as fathers. You're to treat younger men as brothers. You're to treat older women as mothers and young women as sisters. And later in the chapter, he explains how to treat the leaders of the church with honor But the Apostle Paul, here in 1 Timothy 5, has an extensive section concerning the widows of the church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Who is a truly widow? Well, this means that they have no other family to provide for them. And in that case, and in that case alone, the church should help. The church should come alongside. Honor here is speaking of money. This is the same word used to speak of giving preaching elders double honor just a few verses later in verse 17. And verses 4 through 8 here gives this strong command that the church is not to financially support the widow who has believing relatives, who has others who can help. And in verse 8, he says something extremely powerful. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, even pagans provide for their relatives. Don't be worse than them. Don't burden the church with what you ought to be doing. But then Paul continues speaking of widows in the church. Verse 9, he says, let a widow be enrolled. Enrolled in what? Well, the prevailing view among many scholars, is that the enrollment of verse 9, this is a registration of sorts. Uh, In our culture, we would say the sign-up sheet out in the foyer. Uh, That's how we would say it. But this enrollment is speaking of putting them uh, on a list of provision from the church, being provided for from the church. That's what the majority of of, uh, scholars would say. And then Paul lists the qualifications to receive this provision. And we would know this, by the way, that the church is never mandated to feed the poor of the world. That is never our job. It's not our job to feed the poor in general. That's an impossible task. But they are mandated, we are mandated as a church, to care for the believers amongst us who are truly, absolutely helpless. We do care for one another. But I would argue strongly that this list, this enrollment in verse 9, is not the list of those widows who are eligible to receive financial help. The qualification for provision from the church has already been given. Those who are truly widows with no one to provide for them. Perhaps they didn't have children or their children had died or were so far away or unable to provide for some reason. Verse 16 also defines this widow as those who are truly widows. And so to now say that the enrollment of verse 9 is the same as verse 3, it doesn't make sense in light of the fact that the two different sets of requirements could actually contradict each other. 
that a true widow who has no one to provide for her might not have been completely faithful to the qualifications that are going to be listed in verses 9 and 10. And we can't imagine the Apostle Paul saying, sorry, ladies, if you didn't live an exemplary life, we're going to let you starve. He's never going to say that. So this is two different lists. The enrollment of verse 9 is for special ministry duties among the church. This is along the same lines of the description of the older women in Titus chapter 2 to be mentoring the younger women. Because here what we have are qualifications as to what this older godly woman looks like and it has implications really for all of us. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. This was just a, a benchmark to be considered as the age that you're no longer responsible for small children. And it also prevented a 25-year-old women's ministry leader. It just said 60 years of age. That was the benchmark. Having been the husband of one wife, verse 9. Literally, a one-man woman. This is the same Greek construction as the qualification of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, a one-woman man. This doesn't mean that she had not possibly remarried, especially as a widow. It simply means that she was always faithful, always devoted to her husband. She was a godly wife. She wasn't contentious. She wasn't difficult. She upheld and loved her husband as proven by witnesses, as proven by her faithfulness. Paul gives a third qualification, having a reputation for good works. Literally in Greek, the witness about her, the witnesses around her is that she does good things. Generally speaking in the Bible, and we would know this from experience as well, a person has earned the reputation that they have. And so she's earned this reputation for good works. Another qualification now in verse 10 also, if she has brought up children. Again, Paul returns to the focus of the home. Now, this must be more than just having given birth to children. That's not a spiritual qualification. That's a biological function. This is more than just birthing children. This speaks of having raised children actively and making this the mission of her life at that stage of her life. She raised them. That was her goal. That was her purpose. That was her mission. That was her focus. I read recently of a Christian man whose wife has a reputation in her church of being, he said, quote, a natural mom. One of those natural moms. And most of you moms can relate to that. But in fact... This didn't come naturally to her. She wasn't a natural mom, didn't particularly like kids, hated babysitting all the time she was growing up. But out of love for Christ, she devoted her life to her children because that's what you do. When you're a Christian, you obey the Lord. Verse 10, another qualification, she's shown hospitality. She's shown hospitality. This is just a word that means to be friendly towards strangers. She didn't have a tight circle of friends at the expense of reaching out to those she didn't know so well. She reached out to the guests in the church. She had a loving concern for those who who needed a friend. I've preached in churches before where I've observed what the church does when a guest walks in. Everyone just kind of turns around and stares. It was like that. And boy, you see people turn right around and say, I'm getting out of here because that's uncomfortable. No, she's to be somebody who's been hospitable. She reaches out to those that don't have the circle of friends that perhaps they wish they had. What other qualifications? Here it is. Verse 10. She has washed the feet of the saints. This is a lofty and a high spiritual qualification. And yes, this has the broad metaphorical meaning of humbly serving the saints in whatever capacity that she could. But could we remember before we jump to that? that this is still the first century and there was literally a need to wash people's feet. She may have washed the feet of the believers as they came into her home or more likely she washed the feet of the believers as they gathered to worship. We have wonderful greeters who hand you bulletins and say hello to you as as you walk in. We've never asked them to wash your feet. But more broadly, she's characterized as one for whom no task was too low, no task is too menial. She will do whatever it takes to enhance and then bless the church. She's not the one who says, that's just not my thing, or I don't have the spiritual gift of diaper changing. I think that's in 1 Corinthians somewhere. Paul finishes out that she has cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. 
In all likelihood, this is the outworking of what washing the feet of the saints looks like. Now, what does that have to do with a humility-filled life? Well, really, all of those qualifications, all of them are the outworking of humility, of a humble, foot-washing life, less than, not less than 60. She didn't have the attitude of, I'm older and it's my time to be served. She didn't manifest an attitude of entitlement. She continued serving. The wife of one husband. She had humbly submitted herself to the care and authority of a sinful man. And she was exemplary in her devotion to him. She didn't backbite. She didn't resist. She didn't oppose. She listened. She was content. Having the reputation for good works. Humility works itself out in a natural concern for others. She didn't have to tell people that she liked to serve. She just did it. That's humility. If she had brought up children. Listen, modern feminism is actually an oxymoron because there's nothing modern about feminism. The ancient Roman Empire had its own version of radical feminism as well. And so this particular woman would have gone against her cultural conventions of self-seeking goals and instead had devoted herself to her children. That takes great humility because children don't generally say thank you unless you train them to. And then for the first 15 years, they're just doing it out of habit. They don't mean it anyway most of the time. When you read The Cat in the Hat for the thousandth time to your toddler, he didn't reach out to your hand and say, thank you, Mommy, for being concerned about my literacy and my future education. When you prayed over your babies for the 10,000th time, they don't coo and say, thank you, Mother, for being concerned about my spiritual welfare. They don't do that. And she's shown hospitality. Over the years, as she developed a deep circle of family and friends, she didn't rest on the laurels of those relationships. She didn't quit being concerned about the lost people around her, about the lonely people around her. She had a regard for strangers. Why did she do all of those things? Because every one of those things is rooted in humility. And by the way, guess what else the older woman in the church of Jesus Christ in the first century didn't have? She didn't have a book on how to be a godly woman. She didn't have resources to go to. She didn't have sermons really to listen to all over the place about this. She was just humble, and it expressed itself in this explosion of evidence. So when Jesus said, you should do just as I have done to you, that is loaded with implications for our entire Christian life. It's the outworking of humility, which really, in essence, defines the Christian life. But he gives a third explanation of humility. We've seen the example. We've seen the outworking of humility. The third explanation we'll call the mission of humility. The mission of humility. Let's go back to John chapter 13, if you would. This isn't just an endeavor aimed at self-improvement. There's a bigger mission involved. This isn't a message about improving yourself for your own sake. There's something bigger at stake. Verse 16, Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is the 18th of 25 times in John's gospel that he's given the amen, amen, or amen, amen, truly, truly formula. And it's always, it's always preceding something that Jesus wishes to emphasize with weightiness, with importance, with loftiness. And it often precedes a warning. And so Jesus now gives two pronouncements. First, he says, the servant is not greater than his master. The word master is the same Greek word, kurios, for Lord, which Jesus uses to refer to himself, and which the Greek translation of the Old Testament refers to as God. The servant is not greater than his master. Later in the evening... Jesus is going to return to that exact quote. He's going to remind them and he's going to tell them what it means for them. What it means for them is that his lot, his fate is their lot, their fate. Whatever happens to them is bound up in what happens to Christ. He'll say in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he says in his second pronouncement, the messenger 
is not greater than the one who sent him. The word messenger here, apostolos, we translate that apostle. It's a familiar word to you. It means the sent one. Now, in this particular case, it's not being used in the technical sense of the apostles, but the lesson isn't going to be lost on them. These are the men who shortly would be called upon to be the singular representatives of Christ on earth. This is the only time in John's gospel that apostolos is used. And so you were meant to be drawn to it. We're meant to say, this must be important. Because the great messenger, the great sent one, so far has only been Jesus. He's been the only one. Jesus refers to God the Father as, quote, the one who sent me 20 times just in this gospel. He is the sent one, the sent one, the sent one. Hebrews 3 verse 1 speaks of Christ as, quote, Jesus the apostle, the sent one. And what he's doing here is he's transitioning his purpose for giving this lesson. This isn't now just about washing feet and being a good church member and being a nice person. This is going beyond that. So far, he has been the sent one. He has been the apostle. In terms of his submission and his subordination to his heavenly father, Jesus will say in John 14, 28, the father is greater than I. This isn't a statement that Jesus is less than fully God. It's a statement of being willingly subject to his father's wishes and his will in love. And so Jesus is the true apostle, the sent one. But literally in days, they will be the sent ones. They will be the apostles. And while right here in this text, the term apostle isn't applied in the technical sense of being a title, Nine other times in the Gospels, these men are called the apostles, the apostles, the apostles. Nine times. The sent ones. And so just as Jesus, the apostle, didn't act greater than the one who sent him, the Father, so these apostles, soon to be sent out, should not act greater than the one who sent them, Jesus. He's taking this to a whole new level because they will need to demonstrate Christ's likeness if the gospel is to be successful. Jesus added two more apostles later, Matthias to replace Judas, and the apostle Paul who was met face-to-face with the ascended Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. The apostle Paul was speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus in his farewell address to them, and he described his own ministry in Acts 20, beginning in verse 18. He said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In other words, his ministry had to involve humility and tears and trials. And in Paul's case, it involved blood. He needed courage to declare the truth which is pleasing to God and not pleasing to man necessarily. And so if the one who is greater, Jesus Christ, isn't ashamed to be a humble servant, then the one who is lesser, the apostles, they shouldn't be ashamed to be humble servants as well. Because the successful ministry of the church of Jesus Christ hinges on humility. It hinges on that. In fact, we could take this a step further. If you read the New Testament, there's no doubt that the greatest Christian who ever lived was the Apostle Paul. He proclaimed Christ. He suffered for Christ. He wept for Christ. He loved Christ. He wrote of Christ. In fact, he wrote the very words that we cherish as our own church's motto in ministry, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But we certainly can't discount the rest of the apostles. Each one of them lived an exemplary life of faithfulness to the mission of the gospel, the mission of proclamation. They were devoted to the church. They were devoted to Christ. They were devoted to one another. And each of them, each of them died a martyr's death for their faith, the possible exception being John, the author of this gospel. But he was banished by Emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos for his faith. The second century theologian Tertullian wrote that after having been plunged in boiling oil, Domitian was frustrated that he couldn't kill John and after miraculously being saved by God and sent him to the island of Patmos. 
So if Jesus washed the apostles' feet and told them to do the same, and if the apostles lived a foot-washing life, then we ought to do the same because that's how the gospel spreads. That's how Christ is exalted. There's no place for pettiness. There's no place for pride in the greater mission of the church to proclaim the gospel. You know why Satan loves conflict in the church? Because it takes our eye off the prize. It takes our eye off the souls who are going to hell who don't care about the color of the carpet, don't care who's really in charge. They just need to have their sins forgiven. I'll put it this way. As soon as you've been placed in the boiling cauldron of oil for Christ, like John, as soon as you've been speared for Christ, as Thomas was, as soon as you've been crucified upside down after watching your wife die a horrific death and crucifixion, as did Peter, as soon as you've been executed by sword as James was, as soon as you've been crucified like Andrew was, as soon as you've been stoned to death like Philip was, as soon as you've been burned alive like Matthew was, as soon as you've been drowned as Nathaniel was, as soon as you've been crucified as James the Less was, as soon as you've been clubbed to death as Thaddeus was, as soon as you've been sawn in half alive as Simon the Zealot was, and as soon as you've been beheaded as Paul was, then you can complain about your rights and your privileges and assert how important you are. The mission of the gospel depended on the apostles learning this lesson, and they certainly did. Acts 17 called them the men who turned the world upside down. And they did it with humility. Well, Jesus gives one more explanation of humility. We've seen the example, the outworking, and the mission of humility Finally, we'll look at the blessing of humility. The blessing of humility. This is where we see the, the fruit of humility, the flavor of the triumphant Christian life really exuding from our attitude and from our conduct. Verse 17, Jesus said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, it really means since you know these things. He knows they know it. He just told them. This is a conditional if-then statement. if Condition A is true, then B is the consequence. And in this case, there's two conditions. First, if you know these things, that, that condition's already been met. But the second condition is if you do them. And there's an implied then you are blessed. It just means you're happy, you're fortunate. And so the exhortation is that the triumphant Christian life is a humility-filled life but the promise that Jesus gives goes beyond that, that it's also a blessing-filled life, that you'll be blessed. And let me give you four blessings that you can expect because of humility. First, you can expect the blessing of trust. The blessing of trust. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Uh, humility is a Greek word that means lowliness of mind, that you don't have a swelled head. You don't think too much of yourself. And it's placed at the head, at the front, at the top of relational terms, like gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Sadly, we all know somebody with whom you can never be truly fully close and transparent with them because they're keeping the record of wrongs. And as long as you behave yourself, those things will never come up again. But the minute you step on the wrong thing, then it comes up again. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's never actually real. And if you have burned someone badly with a berating tongue, with a pattern of impatience that is unrepentant, with harshness that's unrepentant, you may have at some level of relationship, you may have some sort of friendship, but it might not ever be the way it used to be. That's not a statement about forgiveness one way or another. It's just a factual consequence. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. But humility paves the way to being trusted and looked to and safe. There's a second blessing you can expect from humility, the blessing of significance. The blessing of significance. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, the significant, humble person. 
But follow my logic. Follow the result of humility. Philippians 2, verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So here's the paradox. The one who counts others as more significant will be counted as significant. Can I prove that to you? We have an example, right, in Acts chapter 9. Acts 9 records the death of a woman in the church of Joppa named Tabitha. And Acts 9.36 says she was full of good works and acts of charity. She had particularly taken on the ministry of serving the widows in the church. They were in the upper room where Tabitha's body had been laying and the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter rather was sent for. And there's these widows in this room and they're weeping. And they were showing Peter the tunics and the other garments that Tabitha had made for them. And famously, Peter raised her from the dead. Why is this? She was apparently so significant to these women that they couldn't bear to lose her yet. And so Peter graciously, by God's power, gave her back to them. I always have to wonder if she was kind of a selfish piece of work, would Peter have bothered? Might not if he had said, well, praise God, she's gone home to her reward and we'll just let that be. But verse 41 says that he gave her to the saints and widows, presented her alive. He gave a gift back to them by giving them a humble woman. And because of this, by the way, many came to faith in Christ in Joppa. Why? Because a woman made garments and tunics for widows. She was significant because she was humble. There's a third benefit. We'll call it the blessing of perspective. The blessing of perspective Colossians 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is, of course, similar to Paul's list I just read in Ephesians 4, 1. These are the things that we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. But did you notice something? What's the motive for putting on humility? He says, as God's eclectoi elected ones, the chosen ones, put on humility. Some who don't understand the doctrine of election say that the doctrine of election causes arrogance. According to the Apostle Paul, it causes humility. It causes the opposite. Because if election is the motivation for humility, you're remembering, why would God bother to choose you when you bring nothing to the table but trouble, sin, and degradation? Remembering election brings humility. In fact, Ephesians 1 gives the reason for election. It's the only one given in the whole Bible. Why God elected you. Why he chose you. Why are you one of the electoi? Eclectoi. Because of his love. No other reason is ever given in Scripture. Humility gives you the constant perspective that I am nothing unless God chooses me. We could do one more blessing. We'll call it the blessing of contentment. The blessing of contentment. In 1 Peter 5, Peter has just instructed the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God which is among them, meaning that the elders are only spiritually responsible for those who have indicated officially a desire to be part of that local body. We call it church membership. And then he gives instruction to those, quote, who are younger and then to everyone in general. He says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's an attitude of humility which permeates the church. The elders are submissive to Christ, called in verse 4, the chief shepherd who will appear. The members are submissive to the elders. And in the spirit of loving deference and even loving correction, the members are submissive to one another. What do you get when you have a church filled with humble, submissive people? You have peace and contentment. Why? Because we're infused with humility. What blessings these are? The blessings of trust, significance, perspective, contentment. Clearly, a humility-filled life is an element of the triumphant Christian life. But could I add one thing? Humility is not just 
an element of the triumphant Christian life. It is an indicator of eternal life. It's an indicator of eternal life. Jesus demonstrated this in Matthew 18, 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? Whoever humbles himself like this child. It's not the idea that you have to be innocent like a child. A, children aren't innocent. And B, you definitely aren't. It's the idea of coming with nothing to offer. Children don't bring anything to you except trouble. They come with helplessness and weakness and powerlessness. No three-year-old comes to Christ and says, let me tell you all the good things I've done in the last 36 months. They come with nothing. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs 3, 34, which says that that's the difference between a follower of God and a rebel against God. The humble follows God, the proud doesn't. Job twenty two twenty nine says that God, quote, saves the lowly. This is a Hebrew word that means the bowed down, the stooped, the cowering, the completely helpless. And in fact, when Jesus said here in our text in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, what does that sound like? That sounds like a beatitude, doesn't it? And in fact, it is. It is a classic beatitude formula saying that you're happy or you're blessed if you do such and such. A beatitude, very simply, is a positive evaluation of a person based on the fact that that person is meeting a certain requirement. If you do such and such, that means you're happy. It means you're blessed. Jesus only gives two Beatitudes in all of John's gospel, this one, and then in chapter 20, verse 29, blessed are those who have not yet, who have not seen and yet have believed. And of course, the most famous Beatitudes are those found at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we could go down through all the Beatitudes, but that doesn't imply that some believers are blessed and others are not. This teaches what kingdom citizens are, as do all of the Beatitudes. In other words, saved people are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have a low view of themselves as sinners, and a high view of God as the only righteous one. They're poor in spirit. So how do we apply the formula of a Beatitude that speaks of the quality of a saved person back to John 13, 17? Well, we can reasonably say If you know these things, saved are you if you do them. Not that you're earning your salvation, but you are demonstrating your salvation. How do we know this? The very next verse confirms that this is what he's talking about. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. He's already said earlier that they are clean, all of them, except one. And now he's saying that they will all be blessed in their humility, except one, Judas, the betrayer. You see, more than humility just being an element of the triumphant Christian life, it is an element of the Christian life, period. There is no such thing as a Christian who is perpetually proud. Now, we act in pride, and we do prideful things, and we say things that are prideful, But by definition, we are repentant. I began this morning with the Prince of Preachers, C.H. Spurgeon. And I'd like to end with him as well. The great Spurgeon was preaching on the idea of humility. And he said to his congregation, I know that I am nothing, say you. Yes, but you would not have had grace enough to know you were nothing if God had not given it to you. To be nothing is ours by nature, but to know that we are nothing and to confess that we are nothing is a gift of His grace. Our Father, we thank You so much for this text which so clearly speaks to us. Not only do we want to live a triumphant Christian life, not only do we desire, Lord, to be confession-filled and to be humility-filled, but as we see very soberly here, 
it is also an element of just being a Christian. That we must have humbled ourselves first and foremost before you. We must have knelt before the throne of the King of Kings and acknowledged that we are lost in our sin. We are utterly helpless. We must be like that child who brings nothing except pain and difficulty and trouble. And so ultimately, the definition of a Christian is one who has humbled himself in forgiveness. It is not some sort of journey. It is not some sort of quest to work our way into Christianity. Either we are converted or we are not. And there is a moment in time in which the Holy Spirit humbled us, turned our eyes upon Christ, and bent our knees to the King of Kings. And so, Lord, it is my prayer this morning that every person here has humbled themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. As if we do not humble ourselves now, we will be humbled later. Those are our only two options as human beings. And so, Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has not humbled himself and who still thinks that perhaps he has some little thing to give to God, some little thing to make him appealing to the Lord, I pray that this morning, Lord, that the Word of God do its work through the Spirit to teach us that we bring nothing, absolutely nothing, to teach us that we are nothing, absolutely nothing, and that we find our dignity and our joy and anything good about ourselves solely and only in Christ. And so, Lord, we would pray that you would be honored, you would be glorified, that all glory would go to you, that you would save the lost, and you would continue to work on the humble sanctification of the saved. We pray these things that Christ might be honored. Amen.